God showed the love for me when I went bad sin. God showed the die for me. Boom, five, eight. God showed the love for me when I went bad sin. God showed the die for me. Boom, five, eight. God showed the love for me. Showed the love for me. God showed the love for me. Showed the love for me. God showed the love for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a lover when I went bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a lover when I went bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a lover. Chose a lover. God chose a lover. Chose a lover. God chose a lover. Boom, five. Is the Sabbath required for New Covenant believers in Christ? Good morning, everybody. Let me know where you're watching from. Let me know how you're doing this week. So far, how's your week going? Wednesday, halfway through. Um, not that the week is something to get through. Something to enjoy. Enjoy God in every moment. Today we're tackling the Sabbath. And the last episode we talked about how in the Old Testament, um, this is all that the Sabbath is. Okay, before we address... What does it look like for a Christian to function in relationship with the Sabbath? Before we answer the question, is it required? You know, I, I don't think that's the right question to ask. I'll, say, I'll explain why. Let me give you kind of a recap of the last episode. In the Old Testament, we saw that the Sabbath is a command of God to the nation of Israel. It's one of the Ten Commandments written on stone. It's a big deal, okay? It is actually up there in the Ten Commandments, and we often forget that. Um, the, the Sabbath day of rest is, is the seventh day, uh, which was Saturday. Okay, that was the day that God set apart as holy and uniquely different from the other days of the week. It's his holy day. Um, the Sabbath is a day to cease ordinary common work. It's a gift of God to the nation of Israel. It's for the land, for the people, for the animals to rest. I failed to mention this last time because there's bound to be something I forget, which, which is this, that the, the day technically started the evening, all the way to the next evening, that would be the, sab the Sabbath day. So Friday evening till Saturday evening, that was the Sabbath. Uh, we typically think of a day as starting, you know, you know, I don't know, 5, 6 a.m. the next day or technically 12 a.m., uh, even though it's dark. I think of a day as starting, like when the light comes up that, that next day. But, you know, in Jewish thought, when the sun went down, that would mark the end of that day. Um, and so what we need to consider is the implications that might have on our understanding of the Sabbath. So no matter what, Friday evening to Saturday evening was the solemn day of rest for the people of Israel. It was a gift of God. It wasn't to be a burden. It was a benefit to them. Jesus says he's Lord of the Sabbath. Um, we'll see that the, the Sabbath actually is a foreshadowing of Christ with the manna and the table of showbread um, and the finishing of labor and the rest, all these different elements that are found within the Sabbath. Um, it's a time of refreshing it's a sign between Israel and the God um, and God of the, of the Sinai covenant. Uh, just like the Noahic covenant had a, a symbol, just like the Abrahamic covenant had a sign. Uh, it's a holy reminder that God sanctifies or sets apart his people. 
right? The nation of Israel was God's set-apart nation among the rest of the, of the nations, and they were to have a set-apart day of rest unto God for His glory. Uh, it's attached to the main feast of Israel uh, and their, their Jewish calendar, and so the sacrifices that accompanied those feasts, um, uh, we'd find that typically throughout the feasts, there would be functional or high Sabbath days, um, on the first and seventh day of, I believe, Passover or, or Feast of Unleavened Bread. I can't remember which one. Um, I'm not thinking clearly already. We're off to a bad start. Uh, but also it's connected to the physical tabernacle presence of God. Um, and so it's experienced individually and communally as the, as the nation of Israel. It wasn't just an individual personal responsibility. It was to be experienced as a community, as a nation, as a collective people. Um, so it was a collective effort and pursuit. Uh, the Sabbath day uh, rest, specifically on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was a reminder um, that God sanctifies and cleanses His people, and He used that day to do so, to almost like, uh, you might say, reset the ritual purity of the nation. Um, and the Sabbath is not disconnected from the other Ten Commandments, as if to be an excuse to violate the others. We saw that. Honoring the Sabbath is like honoring God's commands, and it's honoring the tabernacle, uh, it involved the table of showbread and the priesthood, specifically the Aaronic priesthood and his sons, the high priest and his sons would um, get to participate in that food offering from the Lord. Uh, the Sabbath day itself um, would be experienced, again, certain feast periods. Uh, if it didn't fall on a Saturday, you would honor um, those feast days, depending on the prescription and the law of Moses. You would honor it as a Sabbath and there'd be a functional Sabbath, even though it wasn't technically on a Saturday. Um, so it seems like the, the, the concept of the Sabbath seems to transcend beyond just the Saturday, even though Saturday is God's set-apart day, His holy day, the seventh day of rest. The concept of Sabbath rest and, and experiencing that kind of a day seems to go beyond just the Saturday norm because um, there's bigger versions of the Sabbath. There's uh, the entire year, every seven years. If you have seven-year cycles, on the seventh year, you'd have um, a, a sabbatical year, and then there was the year of Jubilee on the 50th year, so every seven sevens. Um, and again, the Sabbath was about reverencing the sanctuary of God. Um, it's a reminder of Israel's past slavery and God's redemptive work. So with all that on the table, now we can start to answer the question, um, you know, is the Sabbath required for Christians? Another way that people ask it is, hey, are Christians required to hold to a Saturday Sabbath? Um, I think these are the wrong questions because <laughs> when, when you say like, are they required for Christians? Required for what? Required for salvation? Required for forgiveness? Required to get into the kingdom of God? Required to be children of God? Uh, required to get into the kingdom as those who are citizens of, of God's kingdom? Required to stay saved and not lose their salvation? What do you mean? And so I think most people are asking, well, Okay, I'm not saying it's required for salvation, like in terms of coming into the kingdom and having my sins forgiven. That's all Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10, right? It's by grace that we are saved. The undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor and kindness of God, that's what saves us through our faith in the Son. But that faith will be expressed throughout the life through obedience, through love. So is the Sabbath one of those commands uh, that I will obey to express my love and my faith in Jesus? Not to say that me holding to the Sabbath makes me any more saved than I am. But if I am a believer, is the Sabbath a part of my everyday experience? Is that going to be pave the road for sanctification? Is that going to be part of what it looks like to obey God faithfully and honor Him? Um, I think that's 
a, a more specific and concise question that we can answer as we navigate the New Testament. And so, frankly, I think when people go, is it required for Christians? I think it's a dumb question. Because essentially, at the heart of that question, is a Christian just not wanting to, they're just wanting to do the bare minimum. They're going, well, how much do I have to do to like effectively be a Christian? It's like, really, that's your, that's, that's your heart? <laughs> that's your heart? I don't think a, a child of God, when I read scripture, it doesn't seem like a true born-again believer will just want to do the bare minimum for God. If God did the maximum for us, wh why would my appropriate response be, I'll just do the bare minimum. And is the Sabbath a part of that? Because I'm just trying to get away with not doing as much as, I, I want to get away with, you know, only doing what I have to. And it's like, I don't think, that, I think that's the heart of a believer. So I don't think we should be asking, how much do we have to do? And is the Sabbath one of those things? I think we, sh we should be asking, well, I, I want to love God. And, and I want to follow him as effectively as possible. I want to walk like Jesus, like in 1 John, to walk like him, to be like him, to, to, to have a life that's modeled after him. And if Jesus kept the Sabbath, does it translate into the new covenant believer's life that we also do as well? There's a lot of things Jesus did that we're not necessarily called to do. Am I called to be an itinerant preacher traveling from town to town with no place to rest my head? Right? Am I called to like abandon all riches and to live in poverty? And to have like be funded by the, the, the people I'm ministering to? Am I called to, you know, go in, into Jairus's house and raise that, uh, his daughter to life? There's a lot that Jesus specifically does. So I think the, the argument that goes, well, if Jesus did it, we should. That, that argument falls apart because there are categories of things Jesus did. He tells the, the disciples, hey, you're going to do greater works than I did. I don't think in, in glory and capacity, but in overall reach over the time span of human history, uh, the church, the, the apostles are going to uh, uh, spread the kingdom and the gospel to greater lengths and um, more things will come of that, but it starts with Christ. So I think, there you go, well, Jesus kept the Sabbath. I don't think that's, that's just the, the, the one and done silver bullet in the argument. I don't think that just ends the debate because again, there's a lot that Jesus did Am I called to walk on water too? Am I called to, well, metaphorically, stop that, stop. Am I called to, you know, to be born of a virgin? I, I don't know, just think of all the things that, list out all the different things that we can associate with the life of Jesus in the Gospels, right? And then go, well, how much of those things can you and I not do? Uh, technically, there's quite a, quite a few of those things. And some of those things will be, you know, some people will be required to abandon all their riches and to live uh, you know, in poverty for the gospel. Not everyone, right? Rich young ruler was called to sell everything to the poor. Is that for everyone? Not necessarily. Uh, some people will be traveling itinerant preachers with no place to rest their head, right? Not everyone will be. We're called to all preach and teach in some capacity. Um, but, but I think when we, again, I just don't think that's helpful. When, when someone asks you, hey, I, am I supposed to keep the Sabbath? And they go, well, what did Jesus do? And you go, he kept the Sabbath, and they go, that ends the debate. I don't necessarily think it does, because I think the new covenant built on the old has some new functionality to it, and I'm not saying that specifically addresses the Sabbath. I'm just saying a lot of things have adapted now that Christ has fulfilled the law. The functions and purposes of certain things that used to be instituted have changed. Did Jesus obey the uh, ceremonial laws, uh, you know, when, when he was born and there was the offering that you had to bring and he had to be circumcised on the eighth day. 
are all those things something that I, that I have to do? And so th- there are categories for this. There are things Jesus did as a Jew to fulfill the law. And now that he's fulfilled it, um, I, I don't necessarily go, well, now I have to do every single thing perfectly. It, it's, it's an issue of when Christ walked the earth, when he was the walking, talking word of God emanating from the Father, you might say he was the Torah with arms and legs, right? When he was the embodiment of God's word, um, that, that, when it comes to obeying the Father, when it comes to walking in, in love, when it comes to, you know, walking in perfect union with the Spirit and submitting to the leading of the Spirit, like that, that right there is going to help us navigate this conversation a bit more. But I just wanted to preface this with, I just, for those of you that are like quick to run to 1 John 3 and be like, walk as he walked, that's, that's too general and unhelpful. You need to be more specific, okay? So, um, I was originally going to open this with all the different times in the gospel that Jesus seems to intentionally target the Jewish understanding of the, of the Sabbath and what it had become in his day and age. Um, I'm not going to start with that. What I am going to do is take you to John 19. And we all know this classic passage, and I've used it before, because technically this is part of a bigger series uh, on the Mosaic Law. We're talking about the Sabbath. John 19, 30, Jesus hanging on the cross, um, fulfilling the last prophecy in terms of his atoning work. I thirst. Um, oh, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Hyssop was associated with cleansing. You know, the actual uh, sour wine there, representative seemingly of the wrath of God, the judgment that came upon the world, sin. And Jesus has taken that full force as if to pay for human evil in himself. So when Jesus received the sour wine, uh, he said, it is finished. And you might even think of it as like, you know, usually a king would have a cupbearer, right? And the cupbearer would taste the wine for the king so that the king wouldn't die. Well, this is the king knowing that the cup is filled with poison, drinking it anyway for us. And so he's saying it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. What's finished? Well, the atoning work that he came to do. He came to dismantle the works of the devil. He came to accomplish our salvation. He came to deal with human sin. He came to repay our evil um, or pay our evil in full with his own life, pay for it. And in his flesh, sin was condemned. Evil was condemned instead of us. So he accomplished what he came to do. He fulfilled all righteousness. He fulfilled all prophecy. He fulfilled the law that was specifically, you know, uh, he met the standard we all fell short of. So it is finished. And we, we go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Um, and there's a lot of passages that speak to Jesus being the high priest and how he's finished. But look at this language. Uh, while we navigate life, we're called to look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So he, as our perfect high priest, mediating a new covenant, representing us before the Father, he's seated because he's done. His work as high priest, atoning you know, for sin and paying our debt and dying our death and fulfilling the law and living the life we never could, he has finished that perfect atoning work. So now he's seated until his enemies should be made a footstool. Now notice, his work as high priest finished, but he is coming back 
to complete the actual plan, to bring it to its completion. In terms of what he has set in motion by his life, death, and resurrection and ascension will be fully realized and manifest in new creation when he comes back. So is Jesus done? Well, in one element, yeah. In one dimension, yeah. But in another dimension, the plan of God, while set in motion, while final, while going to happen, absolutely, and it's unstoppable, it has yet to be fully manifest. So we're waiting for that. We're waiting for that. So they're already in the not yet. Okay. Now remember, okay, remember, remember, I already prefaced this. This is episode two. For those that are like, go to the Old Testament, you dummy. Bro, we spent two hours on the last episode alone just looking at the Old Testament passages that have to do with Sabbath. So go watch that. I've prefaced this with a, a quick bullet point um, list of everything the Sabbath is in the Old Testament. I've told you it's one of the Ten Commandments. I explained what it is. Now, this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11. Okay. Actually, let's do this. Speaking of the year of Jubilee a little bit earlier, I said there's like, there's bigger versions of the Sabbath. So the Sabbath is like one one level, you know, your Saturday day of rest set apart to God. And then there's the seventh year, right? That was the, the, the sabbatical year where the land would lay at rest and you would lay at rest. You wouldn't till the ground. That was a bigger version. Then you have the year of Jubilee, right? The year of Jubilee is like the year of absolute freedom and debts canceled and land returned, right? And contracts ending, going back to families, all this stuff, absolute freedom and liberty and, and excitement, all that. We don't know how much Israel actually held to this throughout their history as a nation. It doesn't seem like this happened, at least when I read the Old Testament, there's no clear, explicit statement saying that Israel actually did this. In fact, God did have to remove Israel from the land because they didn't give their land rest. And so he does punish them for that. But in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is about to start his public ministry in terms of it's the Sabbath day. He's in the synagogue. The scroll is handed to him of the prophet Isaiah because they didn't just have chapters and stuff, right? Those came later. So that he has an entire scroll and he found the place where it is written. This is what he says. This is essentially, I'm trying to think if, if Luke, yes. He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth. So in the Nazareth synagogue, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 and 2. He's reading this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Notice the liberty to the captives. Notice the poor receiving good news of freedom, right? That the spirit of the Lord is upon him. So he is the good news and he's bringing good news of his own work that will accomplish our salvation and our freedom specifically from sin. So the year of Jubilee, while removing actual physical debt and bringing, breaking physical chains and ending physical contracts, right? Where you were in servitude and, and you had no way to pay your debt. So net, but now the year of Jubilee breaks that. Not in terms of like violating it, but like the year of Jubilee goes, hey, all debts canceled, all contracts go back home, all land returned. Beautiful, beautiful. But that was always pointing to the greater spiritual freedom we need. I'm not minimizing it. I'm just saying like, 
what Jesus brings is the ultimate year of Jubilee. And he's going to essentially say that. Uh, Recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now that right there has year of Jubilee written all over it. The year of the Lord's favor, that 50th year in the Jewish calendar with, you know, the first year starting when they come out of Egypt. He's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Who is? Well, the Spirit of the Lord or whoever it is that is anointed with the Spirit of the Lord to proclaim good news. So notice the connection. Whoever this anointed one is has the Spirit of God proclaiming good news of freedom. That is the proclamation of the year of the Lord's favor. But it's not restricted to one calendar year. Yes, the year of Jubilee was one calendar year. But specifically, the year becomes a metaphor for an entire reality now. A a setting in motion of a new mode of existence, a new reality. So the year of the Lord's favor, while wrapped up in the year of Jubilee as one calendar year, Jesus is about to say, watch, he rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, sits down, and everyone in the synagogue was fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, hold on, what part? That you're proclaiming good news to the poor? Yeah. That you're proclaiming freedom to the captives? Yeah. That you're bringing you know, sight to the blind and bringing liberty to the oppressed? That you're bringing the year of the Lord's favor? Yeah. Jesus seems to be the sum total of that prophecy. Not only is he the anointed one preaching the good news, the good news is about him. The kingdom of God is centrally focused around Jesus as our Messiah. He is freedom. He is spiritual sight. He is favor. The favor and grace of God made manifest to humanity. So the year of the Lord's favor, not being like spiritually speaking with Christ, not just a calendar year, but an entire new way of existing now and forever. It's called the Lord's favor. Like me as a believer, because of Jesus, I've come into this new way of life, this new uh, life and this new identity and this new status and this new inheritance and, and all this stuff because Christ has brought the year of the Lord's favor to humanity. He's the fulfillment of it. So he's not saying, hey guys, I'm bringing another year of Jubilee. He's saying the year of the Lord's favor, what you see as freedom physically, what you see as a physical celebration and physical sight being restored. I'm bringing the spiritual, eternal, better version that those things were always pointing to. So when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, okay, and this is how he essentially starts his public ministry. This is the first recorded words in Luke. Matthew chapter 11, it says, come to me. All who are we, all who are le- weary, all who labor and are heavy laden, and Jesus says, "I will give you rest." Rest is associated not just with the Sabbath day, on a Saturday. Rest is not just associated with the sabbatical year. Rest is also associated with what we saw in Luke chapter four, being the year of jubilee. That seems to be like the greatest kind of Jewish calendar year rest, the greatest year possible that you could always expect every 50 years, whether they held to it or not. That's not the the conversation. The point is God instituted it 
to be this great year of celebration and freedom um, and good news. Um, and Jesus says, I will give you rest. Hebrews 4 is going to tell us Joshua, Moses, the law, even the Sabbath itself, didn't actually give humanity the rest that God intended, the, the ideal form of rest, the greatest form of rest. That's something the law couldn't give. It's something Moses and Joshua couldn't lead the people into. Even if they did end up in the promised land, which we'll see in Hebrews 4, that wasn't the eternal rest God had in mind for his people. There was always a greater version. He was moving them toward the ideal, which is his son. So who gives real rest? Jesus. But you have to come to him. You have to cease your laboring. It doesn't mean you stop doing anything and you just live your life sitting on a couch. It means you have stopped striving to earn salvation. You have stopped living by your own self-righteousness. You admit that you are not righteous and you come to him not just for rest, but for the righteousness that he offers us, for the salvation and forgiveness and love and redemption and, and grace that he offers us. And he sums that up with this word, rest. Now the Sabbath was always to be a day of rest, the physical rest, but the labor of the priesthood, that continued. That didn't stop. So there is a way to rest while entering into or enjoying or participating in the work of God, the spiritual uh, priestly work, if you will, since we're a priesthood in Christ, right? Since we're living stones built on him as the cornerstone, since we are the temple now, the, the work we're invited into is a not burdensome work. The kind of work we're used to is pick yourself up by your bootstraps, earn your way into the kingdom, fulfill the law by yourself, be a morally good person by your own standards and efforts, live self-righteously as best as you can to earn your way into the kingdom and to make God proud. You can't do that. You can't. Everyone fails. Everyone sins. Everyone makes a mistake. Everyone is prone to error. There's no one who is perfect except Jesus who invites us into his perfect work. And he doesn't say, hey, now help me save you. And he doesn't say, now add to my atoning work and keep yourself saved by obeying my commands. He says, come to me. I will give you rest. Now what he's talking about is soul level rest, eternal spiritual rest. That frankly is the counter opposite of what the Pharisees were trying to bring people into. They were burdening people. They were trying to uh, they were teaching people that you can meet the law. You can fulfill the law. You go and do and just, you know, be as best you can. And while the Pharisees are loading up people with burdens they can't bear, they're profiting off that. So while they're lowering the standard of God and essentially saying, hey, here's the law. Just do it as best as you can. You'll get into the kingdom. While they're doing that, they're also making it a, a heavier burden than it was intended to be. The law is supposed to, and we've talked about this in previous episodes, the law is supposed to expose your inability and your sin so that you come to the one who can give you rest. So the law is like one big glowing sign directing us to Jesus who fulfills the law, who achieves its end, who fulfills every prophecy, and who gives us the kind of rest that all of your obedience and striving could never give you. 
you being the best moral person on your own will never give you real soul level spiritual rest that lasts. You can have temporary ease. You can have temporary comfort, temporary convenience, right? But that's not eternal rest that Jesus offers us. Essentially, when you come to Christ and you're saying, I believe, you're saying, I admit I can't earn my way into the kingdom. I am not a good person. I don't meet the law of God. But Jesus, he does. And he is perfect. And he's never messed up. And I'm relying on what he did for me to grant me access into his kingdom. And that's exactly what the Father says. So take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. So to take the yoke of Jesus upon us is to actually model our lives after him. So coming to him for rest is not merely a one-time event. Coming to him for rest is something I do one time, yes. But that lifestyle now, because I have his rest, will look like modeling my life after Christ. So the question becomes, is part of our spiritual rest in Christ, is part of that yoke actually holding to the Sabbath Saturday? Is part of the yoke Jesus invites us into, is part of that looking to the, se the seventh day as a day of rest and holding to that and being obedient to that? Is, is that part of the yoke Christ brings us into? He does say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your soul. Everyone wants rest. The problem is we're spinning our wheels, going nowhere, looking for something that if we just stop and come to Jesus, he'll give it to you for free. But you have to admit that you're not righteous on your own. You're not good enough. You're not a morally good enough person to get into God's kingdom. You might be morally better than like Tony down the street who like killed three people. That's great. But you're not good enough to get into God's kingdom because that standard is perfection. So the rest Jesus invites us into is a ceasing of laboring and striving and straining to meet the law of God on my own and to get into the kingdom. Coming to him ends that. It stops that. Sort of how the Sabbath on Saturday would stop ordinary common work. You would stop. And Sunday you'd resume. But Saturday was reserved at a set, as a set-apart day unto God for his glory where you stop ordinary work. And that's exactly what Jesus is essentially saying is that he is, in no uncertain terms, he is the clearest uh, fulfillment and substance of the Sabbath itself so that the kind of rest he brings us into is better than the kind of rest you as a Jew would experience on a, on a Saturday holding to the Sabbath. I'm not saying there was no rest in that. The whole point of that was to rest. But that was always to be a, uh, a glimpse into the greater rest Jesus gives our soul. So while you're resting physically and, and you're going, no, it's a spiritual rest because I'm enjoying God on Saturday. Okay, that's fine. But the rest Christ brings us is something that the Sabbath couldn't. The Sabbath doesn't say, hey, stop trying to meet the law and look to me to save you. The Sabbath doesn't say that because the Sabbath is part of the actual Ten Commandments that expose your inability to meet God's standard. It is the very standard of God you fall short of and it stands as a witness against you. So I can't look to the witness that, you know, that, that, that condemns me, right? That actually exposes my inability and declares 
punishment. I can't look to that to save me. But what Jesus does is he says, come to me. I'll give you rest. I'll, I'll, I'll stop your striving and straining and your self-righteous efforts and I'll stay saved on my own and I'll obey God hard enough and, and I'll earn my way into the kingdom. And maybe you don't say it like that. Maybe you go, well, Jesus saved me, but I sustain myself by my obedience to him. I think you're confusing the fruit with the root at that point because obedience is going to be proof of faith, the fruit of faith, but never the reason for my salvation. Don't, don't confuse the works we do with the root that actually upholds us. Your works don't sustain you. It seems to be that Jesus' work does. Now, the fact that you come and believe and rest in him is going to be indicated and proven by your, your life, your long-term sanctification and obedience to God's commands and love and progressive you know, maturity and, and the growth in, in freedom from sin and conquering the flesh and all of those different elements play into the sanctification process. But that's not what saves me. That's actually what speaks as a witness to the faith I have in the one who does. And it's Jesus who saves. And it's my faith in him that God says, hey, that right there, that faith in my son, I will grant you salvation for that. It becomes the currency of heaven. So if you want to find rest for your soul, Jesus gives that. You don't achieve that. You don't stumble upon that. You don't gain that. You don't work your way into it. You don't like, there's no other way to come across the rest for my soul that ceases all self-righteousness so that I can be truly righteous. Nothing else brings me into that but Jesus. So he says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. John, first John will tell us the, the commandments of God aren't burdensome. Why? Because they find their fulfillment in Christ. So now I'm actually going and doing the commands from a place of security and confidence and righteousness and being loved by the Father and being accepted and approved rather than trying to do the commandments to gain those things. That's why the burden of Jesus is light as opposed to the Mosaic law, which actually stands as a witness against the people. It actually stands as a witness. That's a burden we can't bear. It's a heavy load. You can't meet the law and all its demands. That's too heavy for you. Let Jesus lift that. Let him be the perfect human in your place you never could be. Let him die your death. Let him pay your debt. Let him fulfill the law perfectly, never sinning. He does that. But do you rest in him and trust in him to give you that rest? And then the follow-up question is going to be, Okay, now that I have rest, now that I'm under the burden and the yoke of Jesus, which is light and easy because he's the one lifting and I'm just coming under, is part of that going to be holding to the Sabbath on Saturday? Is part of that that God requires me as an act of obedience, not, as, not salvation, but as here's what it looks like to be my child and honor my name, hold to my Sabbath. Is that still something that we should, you know, obey and hold to as part of our sanctification, as part of our bearing the name of God, as part of our functioning as children of God. If you're going to walk like Jesus, you're going to hold to the Sabbath. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 4, okay? What we do know is that Christ already, <laughs> a couple times, has already stated, okay, that he gives 
rest. He, like the Sabbath, the sabbatical year, the year of Jubilee, not only does he accomplish those things, having fulfilled all righteousness and having obeyed the, you know, what, what God sent him to do, but he actually leads us into uh, what those things were always giving us a glimpse of. Because remember, what we see in the law is a glimpse of what Christ always would be. So the law is what we see in the law. Hebrews, Romans, I believe, uh, or Colossians, speaks of those things as being but shadows cast by the sun, pun intended. Get it, sun? He's shining, but he's also the son of God. So he's the one casting the shadow. And when you look at the Old Testament and the actual physical, material, visible, earthly adherences and laws and, and objects and all those different things were shadows. I really want you to see that. They're shadows. That that doesn't automatically mean, well, now the Sabbath is irrelevant. I've heard this argument before, and I don't think it holds any water. Okay, People that go, well, Jesus never explicitly says that we need to hold to the Sabbath now. He talks about all the other commandments, all nine of them, in fact. But that 10th commandment, the Sabbath, he doesn't explicitly tell us to do. And by, by not saying anything about it, He's making it clear that we don't hold to that in the new covenant anymore. And I go, that's quite possibly, you know, I'm not being, like I've thought about this. I'm really just telling you how I feel. I think that's one of the dumbest arguments ever. <laughs> because he didn't say anything explicitly about it. Therefore, it doesn't, like for sure now it doesn't apply to us. If you're going to come to that conclusion, at least you have better reasoning better reasoning. It's not a good reason. Hebrews chapter 4. I know, I just pissed off a lot of people. You actually thought that. Hebrews chapter 4. Okay, this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. I just want you to see and make sense of what it is that the Sabbath is instituted to be. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... For who? Well, for the people that the author of Hebrews is writing to. Which seems to indicate as long as you're alive, there's a promise that can be available to you, which is that you get to enter into his rest should you actually come to him. Now, you might think I'm reading a lot into that, but watch what he does. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, some people read this and go, see, you can be saved and lose your salvation. You can walk away from it. You can reject it. Is that what it says? Or does it say, hey, people that I'm writing to, let's fear so that none of you miss out on or fail reaching the true promise rest of God. Now, what does that have anything to do with rejecting or forfeiting salvation? Well, he's, he's writing to believers. Really? So every single person who's going to read this letter, the intended audience, the Jewish people, every single one of them the author knows is a believer? When you read Hebrews, it doesn't seem to indicate that. But either way, what I believe is happening here is that there are people who have not yet come to Jesus for the rest that he offers. 
And I'll tell you, there are some people who will fail to reach that because they'll die in unbelief. They'll die in rebellion. They'll die in their sin. They won't come to Jesus for rest. So guess what? Just like the people of Israel failed to go into the promised land, many people will fail to reach the kingdom of God because they failed to cling to the Son in faith. Good news came to us just as to them. Who's them? He's going to talk about the Old Testament nation of Israel in the wilderness. But the message they heard, being the Mosaic law, it didn't benefit them because they weren't united by faith. Right? So there was a message that they heard, not just the Mosaic law, but also that God is going to bring you into the promised land. That promise didn't benefit them. That message didn't benefit them. Why? Because they actually didn't believe it. So guess what? If you don't take God at his word, you don't get to enter into his rest. Period. And I think that's one of the greatest uh, points of that story that we often miss. We're like, ah, they didn't go in, dummies. No, why didn't they go in? There are some people that did go in. Joshua, Caleb, uh, you know, the generation that wasn't old enough to actually be that wicked. You know, the kids. So clearly there were people that did get in after the old generation passed away. And there are even people from like Joshua and Caleb from that generation that were able to get into the promised land. So why didn't the, the wicked generation of Israel in the wilderness get into the promised land? They didn't believe. So the message they heard, key word hearing, didn't benefit them. Because knowing something and hearing something and being aware of something, that's not the same as believing and trusting in something. So it's not just head knowledge. It's not just knowing that something's going to happen. They heard that God was going to bring them into the promised land. They didn't believe it. So they didn't enter into his rest. For we who have believed enter that rest. And God says, quoting from Psalm 95, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So notice how the author is like, kind of like paralleling two seasons of human history. He's going, uh, Old Testament, wicked generation of Israel, us now in first century AD, right? He's paralleling the two. He's going, some people got into the actual promised land, some people didn't. We in our time have entered into the rest of God by believing. Those people didn't. I don't want to do it. These people, while an actual physical rest was promised in the promised land, uh, that always testified to the greater spiritual rest God promised. Now watch. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. What works? Well, not God's involvement in the world. Not God leading humanity to cultivate and expand and rule under his authority and, and submit to him. Not that, but the work of creation. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day. I love that. He's somewhere. <laughs> spoken of the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Do you see attached to the Sabbath, attached to true rest rather, okay? Let, let's, let's kind of detach our understanding of Sabbath from rest for a minute and just say, when it comes to rest, every time that we've looked at it so far, there's a stopping of works. There's a finishing of works. Remember when Jesus in John 19, 30 said, it is finished? Well, God's works were finished at creation on the seventh day, he was done. He rested, right? I forget where. I think it's in the Psalms. or uh, I think in the Psalms it actually says he was refreshed. So God rests on the seventh day from all his works. Jesus says it is finished, yields up his spirit, 
right? Submits himself to the Father, dies, resurrects, right? Seated at the right hand of the Father. So it's the Son imitating the Father. And the seventh day rest here is said to be a stopping from what? From works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Who didn't get to enter the rest of God? Those who weren't united by faith with those who listened. There's a difference between hearing and listening. Right? When my son is hearing what I'm saying, but like watching TV and zoning out, the, the words are going in his ears, the volume's loud enough, like he, he, he hears it, but he didn't listen because he didn't act on it. When he actually does it, that's when he listens. When he takes me at my word and acts and applies it, that's when he's listening. So the people who don't enter into the rest of God, which is a stopping from works that God demonstrates in, in the seventh day account of, of creation, they don't enter into that rest if they don't believe, if they don't listen. Which Jesus will say in Matthew 11, again, that is to come to him. In, in John chapter 6, uh, Jesus will equate coming to him with believing or eating his flesh or drinking his blood in a metaphorical sense to believing. Right, or coming to eat the true bread of heaven. Um, that is synonymous with believing. So to come to Jesus is to believe that he stops all my striving and working so that I can now enjoy the rest of God while I get to work and do the things he's called me to. So now, once we're in Christ, obedience is the fruit, and an enjoyable, natural fruit that I experience as I walk with God in, in, in communion as opposed to, before Christ, all my obedient works, or obedient works, all me doing good things and being morally good, that didn't earn me anything. And that did me no good. And it didn't help me become more saved. And it was actually, you know, just unhelpful, unprofitable. But now that I'm in Christ, obeying Him is the fruit. Whereas I used to see it as, I'm trying to get saved. He saves you, trust me. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, Oh, those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Now, this is where people will uh, assume disobedience means something. It doesn't. The failure to enter is, called dis is, is, is due to disobedience, which he will say, um, is unbelief. Where is it? Sorry, I'm, did I miss it? Unbelief, right here. I should have started with verse 19. They were unable to enter the promised land, which he equates with the rest, because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. So the promised land, yes, they failed to enter into, but they also, at least the wicked generation in the wilderness, they failed to enter into what God was really offering, which was better than the promised land. The promised land was, I don't know, just like a, a side thing. That's just like a beautiful thing that God is doing on top of that. The land is a big deal. Inheritance is a big deal. I'm not saying it's not. Okay, but I am saying God is greater than land. God is greater than a plot of land. God is greater than any kind of blessings that I can experience as a byproduct of knowing him. He's better. He's more valuable. He's my ultimate treasure. So really what they missed out on while, yes, not going to the promised land, they missed out on actually entering into the rest of God called actual communion with him, uh, which would be experienced and enjoyed through just doing what he says. 
They didn't take him at his word. That, that's the bottom line with this whole thing. You don't enter the rest of God because of unbelief. You don't take God at his word, which is a form of disobedience. That's what it means to, to like not believe. You're disobeying. You could choose to believe. Uh, there's a common theology that says hey, you can't believe unless uh, all these different things. You, you can choose to believe something or not. It's just everyone's convinced. Uh, everyone has different levels of being convinced. Like uh, what it takes to convince me might be more than or less than what it takes to convince you. But either way, I, c I can still choose to believe. And maybe like the Berean Jews in, in Acts, search these things to see if they're so. And almost figure out if I should be convinced. So disobedience, rebellion, is unbelief. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. So God's speaking seems to be equated with an invitation into rest. Let me say that again. God's speaking is an invitation into rest. That's what he gives when he speaks to the people, when he speaks through Moses, when he gives them his good commands and his good laws. He's inviting them to trust him. He's inviting them to obey and do what he says and to actually like just be his people. The problem is their hearts. And that's why Hebrews 8, 10 will address the issue of the heart. A heart that doesn't even want what's good for it. <laughs> a heart that actually wants destruction and to self, you know, destruct and, you know, um, can't think of the other word. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Now, the reason why this, the, the author of Hebrews is saying today, okay, is to make a point that the kind of rest God is offering and always has been offering was a rest that actually went beyond the promised land. Because if they're already in the promised land and David's writing these words like, hey, don't, don't harden your, your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, you can still enter into his rest. What do you mean? We're in the promised land, bro. We are in his rest. Well, it seems to be a future day where there would be a, a greater kind of rest that is offered. Should you, should you trust in God, you can actually uh, benefit from that. And I think the rest is the Son of God. So if Joshua had given them rest, God wouldn't have spoken of another day later on. So he says it pretty clear. He's not talking about the promised land rest. He's talking about another day later. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Whoever has entered God's rest also rested from his work as God did from his. So remember, to enter into God's rest um, is to believe. Verse 3, we who have believed enter into that rest. So it's not like, you know, the rest is a future experience for us. If you believe right now, you have entered into, by the clear statements of, of the author of Hebrews, you've entered into the rest of God. You have, you're in it. You're, sub, you're submerged in it. That's your reality, is rest. Rest is now your reality, spiritually speaking, at the soul level. Okay, you've entered into the rest of God by believing. But if you've entered into God's rest, that assumes you've rested or stopped or ceased from your own works as God did from his. Now, there was no problem with God's works. They were perfect. They were complete. He was finished. There's a problem with mine. So where I believe in Jesus is where I stop trying to earn salvation. 
right? That line I draw on the sand where I, I go only this far, that marks the line where I stop looking at my own works and obedience and, and morality as like confidence to get into heaven and now I look to Jesus. And I've rested from my works. That doesn't mean we don't do anything. Ephesians 2 tells us there's a lot of works God has created for us to do. So get to work. But don't think those works equate to your salvation. Those works and any good fruits that result from your faith are simply the product of your salvation. Just the witness to it. The proof of it. And I don't think you need to spend your life like, I'm just trying to prove myself. I think if you just follow Jesus and you have faith and you walk with him, you will see fruit naturally rather than force it because you're afraid you're going to hell and if you don't have enough fruit. So <laughs> verse 11 says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So what's he inviting the audience to do? To make sure they don't fall short like the, the Israelites in the promised land. They fell short because of unbelief. Is there potentially unbelief within the people he's writing to? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because they're tempted to go back to Judaism. They're tempted to actually go back to the law and sacrificial system, which historically speaking, I think Hebrews is written a number of years before the actual destruction of, of the temple in AD 70. So it hasn't happened yet, but it will. <laughs> and so, like, even if they go back to that, spiritually speaking, it'd be wiped out physically. So he says, let's therefore strive to enter that rest. Hmm. So there's a striving required? Well, there is an actual, like, coming to Jesus, right? You choose to believe in him. He's not saying strain by your efforts. He's saying, like, put effort, like, uh, <laughs> seek to enter that rest. I think it would be a, a helpful modern translation. Seek to enter that rest. Desire to enter it. Come to Jesus. Believe in him. Don't you have a responsibility to play? But you're not getting in by your efforts. We're not putting the emphasis on you and what you do. But there is a part on the believer to go, I want to enter into the rest of God. Like, I want to get into his kingdom. So I believe. Don't miss it. Don't fall short because of unbelief. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So he's saying some of you are still in danger of falling by that same unbelief. Like they have yet to believe in the Messiah. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Right? Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You're going to give an account to God. You're going to give an account of what you did with his son. You either trampled him underfoot, like Hebrews 6, and Hebrews 10, or you believed in him and clung to him and actually trusted him and, and honored him with your life. So, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold fast our confession. So, what is the kind of rest God is actually inviting people into? He's really inviting people to come to himself through his Son. It's just one big invitation into rest. But the way into rest is to come to the one who gives it, who is the substance of all the kind of foreshadowing resting that we see in the Old Testament. He's the one casting those shadows, which are lesser versions for sure, which isn't to minimize their significance in human history or their purpose that God used them for. It's to say Christ is the full completion of and the fulfillment of 
any kind of rest we see being foreshadowed in the Old Testament Sabbaths and the Jubilees and, and the, the, the sabbatical years. Those who are looking forward to Jesus. So let's hold fast our confession to him. He's our high priest. He's passed through the heavens. He's the greater Joshua. Just like Joshua brought the people to the other side into the promised land, crossing the Jordan River, Jesus brings us through death into life, into his kingdom. Not just spiritually speaking, where we die to ourselves and we come alive in our spirit, but where we actually are resurrected to new life and death has no hold on us. And he's inviting us to come into his kingdom, back, back to the Father, through him as the only way. He's the one who gives rest. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So he's not saying your temptation and your struggling negates your rest or your salvation. He's saying, you understand this, the high priest you have, right? Like he understands, he can sympathize. He's actually been tempted in every respect, uh, yet without sin. So we can confidently draw near to the throne of grace to find help and strength to resist sin and mercy when we do struggle and mercy when we do sin. Not to make grace a license to sin at all, but to say that there is mercy, and God is merciful. And there's a constant, progressive, you know, invitation to rest throughout human history. It just gets bigger and bigger. Like it gets clearer and clearer. As, as time goes on, as the nation of Israel grows and expands, and as, as, as the story of, of, the, of the scriptures unfolds, we see this progressive revelation happening where we can go all the way back to creation and go, look at God rested. And then we look at Jesus who on the cross says it is finished. And then Hebrews who says, yeah, God is actually inviting you into the kind of rest that his son has for you, who is the substance of Sabbath, who is the substance and fulfillment and achievement of any Sabbath rest you see in the Old Testament. And he's inviting you to come and have that spiritual rest, soul level rest that stops your self-righteous works, that frankly, no amount of, Sabbath keeping on your own could ever accomplish. So, so you can equate 10,000 lifetimes of holding to the Sabbath. And, and I'm not saying they're at odds, but one gives salvation, one doesn't. You can have 10,000 lifetimes of holding to the Sabbath, right? But, that, but then failing and falling short of God's law and, and missing out on eternal life. Or you can have the Son. You can have the Son, who is the substance of these things, and then go walk in obedience to Him, which leads us into the main question we're trying to answer, which is, is the Sabbath not only required for believers, is that a part of our sanctification, obedience, life of honoring God? Is that the way we image Him and reflect His glory and, and bear His name? The secondary question then becomes, is Sabbath only Saturday? Well, I'll tell you, historically speaking, when I read Scripture, there's no verse that I've ever come across that says God's Sabbath day changed to Sunday. I don't see it. I, I don't think many believers have actually thought about that. I haven't found zero. You can say, well, they started gathering on certain days. Well, they gathered every day throughout the week in Acts. So they regarded, I mean, essentially, what they're saying by, by communicating that in Acts chapter 2, they met in house to house every day. The, the, the church is having... Um, God is adding to their numbers. Every day they're gathering. Every, all this, meeting in the temple as a congregation, meeting in homes and small groups. That um, 
lost my train of thought. That was not saying anything necessarily about Sabbath, but to say that, hey, they regarded every day as this holy, uh, beautiful day that the Lord has made where they can enjoy and testify of Christ. So I, I still believe that if we are technically speaking, okay, if we're technically speaking of what, God, what day God set apart, it hasn't changed. I don't think it's changed. I believe the seventh day, Saturday, Jewish calendar is still appointed to be that Sabbath day of rest that we see in the Old Covenant. The question then becomes, uh, if that's still Sabbath, okay, uh, and this is still the Lord's day that he set apart as holy, as a sign of the covenant, the Sinai covenant between him and Israel, okay, the question then becomes, do we need to do that? Is that part of our holiness and obedience and growth and love for God expressed? Number one, when we read Colossians 2 and Romans 14, Galatians 4, what we're trying to do is remove our lens from the scripture. I, I don't want to read these scriptures through the lens of Sabbath keeping or not Sabbath keeping. I don't want to do that. What I want to do is read the text objectively for what it says. Regardless of what you have learned, unlearned, what your favorite pastor has told you, what you've, you know, modern church is garbage, America's church is garbage, they don't hold to the Sabbath, and you found yourself swinging to the, wherever you find yourself, I, I'm just asking you, when we read these passages, please, for the sake of honest exegesis and biblical integrity, let's remove as best as we can, consciously remove any kind of lens we might bring to the table, any presuppositions we might bring to the table, any, any, any inherent desire to work around what is actually being said to justify the Sabbath and force it in there, try and remove that, okay? Second, I'm not telling people not to keep the Sabbath. Hear me, hear me, hear me loud and clear. I am not telling anyone, do not keep the Sabbath. I, I'm actually saying, even if we come to an agreement, technically, where we look at Scripture and go, it doesn't seem like we like have to as part of our obedience sanctification process. And it doesn't seem like it's a requirement for believers to like enjoy God and fellowship and love and, and holiness. Even if we come to that conclusion, I would never say, don't keep the Sabbath. See, don't do it. Again, there is this mentality in the Christian world that says, we just want to do the bare minimum to get into heaven. Well, believe. That is literally the easiest thing you can do. <laughs> God couldn't make it any easier, but at the same time, it's so difficult because believing is something that people just don't want to do. Admit failure, admit moral imperfection, admit your inability and helplessness, admit there's a God that actually made you, and people don't want to do that. Okay, so the human nature uh, complicates that concept of faith. So I'm not telling people don't keep Sabbath. We are saved very easily through faith by grace. Christ did the heavy lifting. He lifted the burden. He carried the heat of the day, bore the heat of the day so that we could have life. He died our death and paid for our sin in full, took evil upon his flesh so that in the flesh sin was condemned. Evil was punished. So I don't believe that a Christian should respond to that and go, yeah, but what's the bare minimum I need to do? Really? Like, really? Let's have a, let's have a talk. The, the king of the universe who is worthy of all glory, who doesn't have to do a thing for us. He went to the greatest length possible. He did the maximum he could do by sending his son. The eternal word emanating from him as his beloved 
only begotten Son comes into the world to bear our sin, to die our death, to meet the law, to live the life none of us ever could. And you're just responding to that and going, wow, look at that magnificent love. But how much do I have to do? Really? You might want to have a heart check, bro. <laughs> like for reals. So I'm not telling anyone don't keep the Sabbath. And I'm for certain not saying, even if we don't have to, that doesn't mean we shouldn't. Personally, I have, I hold to the Saturday Sabbath day of rest. Because I'm afraid of losing my salvation? No. Because I'm trying to stay saved and make sure I get into the kingdom and squeeze in so I'm not a part of the Mark of the Beast system? No. For the people that think the Mark of the Beast, don't, don't get me started. I do it because I love God. I do it because I want to honor Him. I do it because I want to rid myself of any self-preserving tendencies and any pulling myself up by my bootstraps habits and any kind of pride and ego and, and putting myself in more control than I actually have. I want to rid myself of all that. And the Sabbath is instituted not only, but partially to remind the people you don't sustain yourself. Your work is not your main source of provision. You don't keep yourself alive by your own efforts and straining and striving. He does. Take a day off, look to him, honor him, admit you're not in control as much as you think. Admit he's the king and he gives you breath in your lungs and let that day be an enjoyable day where you remind yourself he's on the throne, I'm not. So yeah, I want to have a day like that. I need it for the sake of my ego, for the sake of my pride, for the sake of my own self-righteousness that creeps up very easily. I need that for the sake of my nearness and, and closeness to God. I need that. Okay. So I'm not telling anyone don't keep the Sabbath. And I don't believe Sabbath day changed to Sunday. But when we read these texts, please be objectively, just be honest about what it's saying. Is the Sabbath still a, one of the Ten Commandments? I certainly believe so. I don't believe that God took a little holy chainsaw and just kind of cut off the last part. Don't need that one anymore. I believe the tablets of stone are what they are. So, we can come to an agreement here. And I encourage people to keep the Sabbath. Not to stay saved, not to be saved, not for spiritual insecurity reasons, for the sake of why not? Why not? But again, your obedience to the Sabbath, your adherence to the Saturday Sabbath doesn't save you. That's not your confidence. That's not your source of hope. That's not your, your, your sense of righteousness. That's not your assurance. That's not your boldness. Jesus is. And I've seen people, people who have been in church for 30 years and then they, they discover that everything they've been taught has been distorted and messed up and they didn't learn the Sabbath and then they, felt, they, they find themselves in like a Jewish, messianic Jewish community, right? And then they become so obsessed with what they didn't learn earlier in the years that they're, all they talk about are those things. Well, the Sabbath is everything and Sabbath. And they've put so much stock and confidence and hope and assurance and boldness unknowingly put so much of their peace and hope and joy in their own ability to rest on a Saturday. And they've unknowingly, inadvertently taken confidence that Jesus, he should have my confidence. He should, he should be the source of my peace. 
He should be the source of my joy. And they've placed that in their own ability to adhere to certain laws. Now, I will say, what Jesus invites us into is a life of holiness. Sanctification, that's, that's mapped out and paved by the laws of God, for sure. But there's a difference between looking to Jesus as my confidence while I walk in obedience. There's a difference between that and then looking to the commands of God and my obedience to them for a sense of spiritual assurance and confidence. The life is to be a witness. Not the reason I feel secure. Not the reason I'm getting into heaven. Not the reason I feel saved today. So I'll tell you, Colossians chapter 2 is about to get real, <laughs> real, real. Colossians 2. I read this passage the last time with the dietary laws. Some of y'all didn't like that. So, just to kind of summarize so I don't beat this drum too much. Jesus is the mystery hidden within the Old Testament. In every law, every command, every underlying detail of the narrative, every character that fails to be what they're supposed to be, in the entirety of Hebrew Bible, you will find glimpses of the true mystery hidden and concealed in the scriptures being Jesus. And Paul wants us to keep that central. So don't be deluded by plausible arguments. Stand firm in your faith. Make sure that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, which has to do with human tradition. Elemental spirits of the world or elementary principles of the world. Things have, when you think about elemental spirits, elementary principles of the world, he's not talking about like antichrist doctrine. He's not talking about like blasphemous, like explicitly anti-Jesus violating the laws of God. He's talking about the things that put so much emphasis, which I guess in some degree can be antichrist at its core, but the things that emphasize your ability to not touch, not eat, abstain from, do this, and these things are material, physical, and earthly in nature. Which is what we see in the Mosaic Law, being the temple and the vessels, the actual priesthood, the animal sacrifices, actual blood, actual basins where the blood goes. All these actual, physical, earthly uh, shadows of the substance being Jesus. So he puts Jesus at odds with these things that are leaking into the church. Okay? Because in him you were circumcised, buried with him in baptism. I'm just skimming over some things because the, the real fun starts in verse 16. Go read Colossians 2 on your own. Everyone always expects me to read like every verse in its entire context. <laughs> it's like, you didn't read the other eight chapters. Really? Because we don't want to be here till 12 a.m., buddy. Like, Chuck, you go read the Bible. Colossians 2.16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Okay? This is you not allowing someone to inflict a kind of judgment on you that you succumb to. Do I control who makes what judgment calls about me? No. Can I do my best to present myself and live a life uh, in which accusation has less of a basis? In other words, can I live a life where I'm above reproach? Can I live a life where my conscience, like Paul testifying to, I forget who it is, uh, one of the leaders of Rome. He's testifying going, I'd live with all good conscience. Can I live in such a way where I give people no reason to accuse me? For sure. But I can't control whether or not they make any kind of judgment calls about me. So this isn't about, hey, don't
don't let anyone speak bad about you. He's saying, don't let anyone pass judgment on you in your questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Verse 18 will say, let no one disqualify you. So what he's essentially saying is don't let anyone disqualify you by their own judgments about what you should or shouldn't be doing to follow Jesus or be saved. This is an issue of disqualified from what? Disqualified from the faith. Disqualified from the kingdom. Disqualified from salvation. Don't let anyone do that. And you go, well, no one else has the power to do that except God. Yeah, but you can still choose to believe someone else's wrong judgment about you, right? You can still choose to submit yourself to like a, a false judgment, right? A baseless accusation against you and go, hmm, you know what? I believe that. You can choose to believe that. Don't do that. Especially when these judgments are, are questions or issues of food and drink. Uh, festivals. New moons. Or a Sabbath. Now you go, well, he's talking about the actual observance of Sabbath within the feast days and, and that kind of thing. He actually separates Sabbath from those things. As if to be its own category. Speaking of Sabbath, what day is Sabbath? What day is the Sabbath? We've established it. It's Saturday. Didn't change. The question then becomes, if the day didn't change, did our function to that day and our relationship with that day change with Jesus coming and being the Sabbath day of rest, eternal spiritual rest that we all needed? And I know some of you are... You're just clenching your fists so tightly. You got tight booty cheeks right now. You, you do not want to admit that you're holding so tightly to the Sabbath that you're tempted to say, no, it has not changed. Let's keep reading. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, right? Uh, like a, wow, what's the terminology I'm looking for? It's a, f where you abstain from something in almost an abusive way, almost, almost to make material things of this world, like naughty, stay away from that, borderline abuse, abstaining from certain things, uh, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, uh, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So look at the people, the kind of people Paul is warning the Christians not to listen to. They seem to be very prideful. They seem to be, they have no reason. Like the, there's no critical thinking. There's no logic. Hello, our society. They have a sensuous mind. Okay. Which just seems to indicate like selfish ambition, lustful passion, that kind of thing. Not holding fast to the head. So they, they definitely don't seem to be connected to Jesus. Okay. From whom the whole body nourished, knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you are still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. And then you stop me and you go, Paul is not addressing the actual Mosaic law. He's addressing 
the extra, extra teachings that God never gave that the people traditionally passed down and made up on their own. These are man-made teachings that were put on top of the actual law of God and even replaced some of the laws in the mind of the Jewish people. And I go, potentially, sure. I don't think that's only what's in mind. And you also, I know some of you are thinking, he's speaking of salvation. He's saying, don't let anyone disqualify you because of your, or with questions of, or with judgments about what you eat or drink, uh, what you do in regards to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. Does it, does it not sound like Paul is, and if you read verse 17, I think this kind of verifies that. Does it not sound like Paul is saying that there isn't any real black or white truth or error when it comes to whether or not you hold to festivals, new moon, Sabbaths, or what you eat or drink. Now, Romans 14 will tell us it's, there's an issue of conscience, and we will talk about that. But for now, I, I will just say this. I, I don't think Colossians 2 is a passage we can go to to say we should or shouldn't hold to the Sabbath. I don't think it's a good passage, but I do think it gives us an understanding of how we should see the Sabbath in relationship to Jesus. These are, and these being Sabbath, festivals, new moons, food and drink, these are a shadow of the things to come. The substance belongs to Jesus. So, of, of course, I think the issue is people are using these things to try and disqualify people from salvation, right? They are trying to use these kinds of issues, debates, topics to disqualify people from the faith and go, you're not a believer because you don't do these things. You have to do these things to be saved. You have to be circumcised to be saved. You have to, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, a true child of God, inherit the earth with Jesus the Messiah and rule with him, yeah, you have to hold to these things and do all these things that we do. And Paul's going, well, these are a shadow of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Now, you can make a case that Paul here, the things to come, refers to a future reality we have yet to experience, potentially in the new creation for sure. Especially when you read the end of Ezekiel and you're like, temple, what? No matter what, the substance of both those things of the past and those things that are to come, the substance, the entirety, the purpose, the reason is Christ. No matter what. So whatever conclusion you come to about should we hold to the Sabbath, are Christians required to have a day of rest on Saturday? Let your answer revolve around the main issue, which is that Christ be glorified and God be honored. Let that be your reason. Whatever conclusion you come to, let it be what honors Christ most and honors the Father in love and obedience most. But Paul is saying these aren't issues of salvation essentially what he's saying. Can we agree on that? I think every, most, all of you, even though those of you who are like believers who are children of God should hold the Sabbath on Saturday. I don't know why I talk like that. You would go, I'm sure. I'm not saying it's an issue of salvation, but I don't know. Let's talk about this. Aren't you, when you tell people that true children of God will hold to Saturday Sabbath, aren't you 
when you actually make the mark of the beast in Revelation out to be Sunday observance of Sabbath rather than Saturday? Like, aren't you? Aren't you making it an issue of salvation? When you tell people that, look, you either hold to Saturday Sabbath in obedience to God, or essentially you're of Antichrist because it's the mark of the beast if you don't. Aren't you making it an issue of salvation? So, you won't say it. <laughs> you won't say it. But essentially, the underlying heart behind whatever it is you are saying is you might not really know or love God if the Sabbath, Saturday rest, is not a part of your life. Be careful. Be very careful with that. Because what you're convinced to do, based on your conclusions from Scripture, someone else could read the same thing, have the same level of knowledge as you, potentially more, come to a different conclusion, right? And they go, I, I just don't see it. I don't see that it's a requirement. And maybe neither of you are wrong. Maybe it is an issue of conscience. Maybe one of you is right or wrong. But the point is that you can be equally convinced on the other side and have equal reasoning and have equal scripture to back your claims. And it's equally as valid. So I don't think we should just wash other people they go, they're trash. They don't hold to Saturday Sabbath, so they're probably not even Christian. you know, Or they haven't leveled up into like real sanctification. So no, no matter what, there seems to be this concept within the Christian world, which is that, you know, you, you won't say it, but adherence to Saturday Sabbath almost like brings you into another dimension, another level of obedience and holiness and love. And, and now you're really experiencing like what it means to walk with God. And, and now you're really experiencing what it means to like be a Christian. So that means like if you don't, potentially you're not a believer or potentially you're like not as good of a believer as you could be. Romans 14. It says... One person esteems one day as better than another. There are some of you that would say yes. Saturday being the God's holy day, that is the day of, of, that he has set apart for himself. Right? Saturday is a day of rest. He models that in creation. Didn't change. So that day is better. That's the holy day. That's the day we rest. I don't know, but another esteems all days alike. In other words, all days have equal value and potential to honor God. Maybe equal opportunity to rest. Maybe equal opportunity to really walk with Jesus. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Be careful that your convictions, again, and I, and I understand the heart. I do. I understand the heart. But be careful. A lot of us think certain commands we hold to it's clear in scripture. We're like, that's an objective law for all of God's people. But I look at it and go, mm, I don't see it. And you go, ugh. You'll, you'll see it eventually. Be careful that you don't make your personal convictions an objective moral law for all of God's people when it's not backed by scripture. Uh, Paul does say each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day. Let's highlight that. Not just a day, not just one random day. One who observes the day uh, could have in mind the Sabbath there. What other day is there that you would esteem or observe in honor to the Lord? The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. What other day is set aside to be in honor to God except the Sabbath? And it is the day as an exclusive term. 
It's an, it's an article you add to a word to make it exclusive in nature. So the one who observes the day uh, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Notice how Paul doesn't make any of these a right or wrong, a black or white issue. But now, these things become issue of conscience. What you do with it. How you function in relationship with the... I forget which commandment it is. The Sabbath is like... It's obviously one of the ten, but... In the list, I don't remember what number. But no matter what, the point is, he doesn't make our relationship with the Sabbath commandment a, a, a black or white issue. But instead, so far... If Paul was addressing something else while protecting it, while protecting the sanctity of Sabbath and going, we still need to hold to this, that, that would have been explicitly clarified. And there wouldn't be this like, uh, Paul, you seem to be saying that every day is essentially like whatever my conscience testifies and whatever I feel led to do as, you know, concluding in scripture, like I can do that in honor of the Lord. Kind of seems like the Sabbath is becoming less restricted to at least the concept of rest and enjoying God and having a functional Sabbath doesn't seem to be any more restricted to Saturday. But is Sabbath still the Saturday? Is that the Lord's Day? Sure. What do we do with that? I'm going to give you a few thoughts after this. I know I found sound contradicting. I'm not. I'm just trying to not get ahead of myself. None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live, whether we die, we're the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. No matter, I love that Paul, in any debate, in any conversation, in any topic he's addressing, he always brings it back to the central focus of Jesus. The centrality of Jesus needs to be maintained in all these arguments and conversations. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. It is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Every tongue shall confess to God. Each of us will live or give an account of himself to God. What is Paul making an issue of conscience here? Well, he does start in verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith. Don't quarrel over opinions if he thinks that he can eat certain things or can't eat certain things, no matter what, let your be fully convinced in your own mind, not like baseless, uh, misinformed convictions, but have biblical, God-honoring convictions that are rooted in the scriptures. And if you and I read the scripture and you go, the Sabbath is something we have to do and hold to and we're required to rest on Saturday, you're convinced in your mind, be convinced. I will not try and sway you. But if I, same data, different conclusion, and I don't think it's an actual requirement. I don't think it's an actual requirement that we observe a certain day in honor of the Lord as a day of rest. That's my conviction. <gasps> I'm trying to honor God as best as I can. But I do honor Sabbath because I'm convinced in my own mind that if I can, I should. That I want to honor God as best as I can. But I'm not going to, it seems as though in the New Testament, Galatians 4, that this really is not as black or white as we'd like to paint it. It is an issue of conscience. What day will you regard 
or observe in honor to God. Potentially as a day of rest, that might be in mind in Romans 14, but he is making the days in general the equal opportunity to honor God and, and you know, please him. He even addresses the day, which I do believe he is speaking of the Sabbath. Why he doesn't use that exact terminology, I don't know. I don't know. Um, Galatians 4 says, Formerly when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature aren't gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I don't believe Paul is saying, Christians, why are you observing feast days and Sabbath days in honor to God? Come on. I think what's being addressed is there, these, these days, months, years are being observed. Seems to be in alignment with the Jewish calendar because they're making it an issue of salvation. And that's the heart of what Paul's addressing. Okay, I, I, I admit, I admit that what he's addressing has become an issue of salvation for many of the believers. And he's trying to make it not an issue of that and saying, look, feast days uh, or, or days, months, seasons, years, which just, if, if what are they observing? What are they holding to? Uh, you go, well, the Greek calendar, their holidays, Jewish calendar, their holidays. He's pretty unclear. Um, but if he's been talking about the law and being enslaved to the law, it would make sense that whatever days, months, seasons, years he has in mind are connected to the Mosaic law and the Jewish calendar. So this would be a, an opportune time for Paul to say, look, we don't observe these things in replacement of Christ or even in addition to him. We observe these things because we love him. This would be a fine time to actually like say that, but he doesn't. <laughs> Brothers, I entreat you become as I am, as I have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And even though my condition was a trial to you, you didn't scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as, as Christ Jesus. Right? Jesus says when you give a cup of water or you feed or you, you come and visit one of the least of these, you, you did it to me. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, listen, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Listen, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. The people who are coming in with these lies, circumcision, you know, seems like observance of certain days or months or years, um, which might include Sabbath, as, as if to be, you know, necessary for salvation. These people are creeping in just to make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. Not only when I'm present with you, um, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. I'm perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So whatever he's addressing is in relationship with the law. And the observance of those days, months, seasons, years, are in relationship with the Mosaic law. Now again, this would have been a fine time for so I don't think we can make an argument from, from what's not said but or what should have been said. But Paul doesn't say, you know, we should observe these things because of love and obedience. Um, he's actually focused on making sure that doesn't become a salvation issue. 
I don't think that means it's a non-issue now, just because it's not a salvation issue. But I, I'm just giving you the data. And I'm trying to show you that Paul, in, when he's addressing the Galatians, in the days that should be observed or shouldn't be observed, or what do we do with this, and is this an issue of salvation? He's going, you used to be under the law. Don't turn back to it. Which is to say, yes, my observance to you saves me and, and Jesus doesn't. Don't do that. Don't do that. So what place does the Sabbath have in the life of a believer? Well, according to Romans 14, it seems to be an issue of conscience. And you go, how can a ten, one of the Ten Commandments be an issue of conscience? Because this. Ready? Here are the thoughts that I'd like to give. Let's actually pull it up because people probably don't believe me. Okay, Exodus 20. I think I'd know that by now. We've been in the law for quite a while. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it do no work, you or your son, your daughter, your male servant, pretty much anyone in your household or your livestock, or even the stranger within your gates. So interesting, something I never kind of caught on or paid attention to was the collective nature of this specific law. And how the nation of Israel is actually functioning in relationship with this specific commandment. It's, hey, sojourners, strangers, y'all who live in Israel, you better observe this with us. In six days the Lord made heaven and the earth to see all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Then it goes into honor your father and your mother. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. And... What I would like to say is this, and this is partially me shooting from the hip, but I'm, I'm really thinking about it, okay? So don't you dare, dare think this is a baseless claim. When it comes to the Sabbath day being holy, um, not laboring, we understand that biblically in Hebrews 4, uh, Luke 4, Matthew 11, John 19, Jesus fulfilled and achieved the purpose of the law in himself. I mean, really... Not only was the law put in place to be fulfilled by him, but the law prophetically testified of him in his character and his work. So, the only reason we have to try and reconcile this, like we wouldn't have to come to the Ten Commandments and go, so how is it that this seems to be a non-issue in the New Covenant? We wouldn't have to like even have this conversation if passages like Colossians 2, Romans 14, Galatians 4 if passages like that didn't exist, but they're there. And I don't think it's to undermine the value, the significance, the authority behind the command at all. It's to find the substance and heart and wisdom of that command as being achieved in totality in the work of Christ when he said it was finished. He's bringing us into the Sabbath day rest that was always testified of by the Saturday rest by the Saturday Sabbath. So essentially, okay, 
and I don't think this is a workaround, I'm just thinking out loud, by honoring the Son and coming to Him and believing in Him as the true rest who ends my work, you are honoring not just the Father and not just the Son, but the Sabbath itself, which is instituted to proclaim Messiah and to bring us into rest and, and give, you know, set apart the nation of Israel from the other nations who are working and striving. But, but don't, like, aren't we set apart too? Like as believers, don't we live differently, not just on Saturday? Because, I mean, of course, the laws of God, all the Ten Commandments for the nation of Israel, it wasn't just like, only do these things on Saturday. But there was one you only do on Saturday, and that was to keep the Sabbath. So essentially, if you go to Israel on a Saturday in the Old Testament, you would, you would hopefully see something completely different than the surrounding nations. Now that we've entered into the rest of Christ, I'd like to propose that every day of my life should look different than the unbelieving world around me. No more striving, no straining, no, no self-righteousness, no trying to get into heaven on my own, but entering into the rest of God having by believing and leaning on the Son and clinging to Him. I, I have entered into His rest. I, I have honored the true Sabbath Himself who has testified within the day of rest within the, within the law. And so when I read the Ten Commandments and I go, this is one of the Ten Commandments, but Colossians 2, Romans 14, we, we can try and read those New Testament passages through the lens of this, this has to be, like, the Sabbath day has to be true still. It is true. Is it true that God sanctifies a day? For sure. Is it true that that day is holy? Is it true that his son is also sanctified and set apart? Just like the people of Israel who failed to be the people of God, you know. Is it true that Jesus is the one who brings ultimate rest? And that God has honored his son as set apart from the rest of humanity? Is it true that God has done that? We're not undermining the truthfulness of the Sabbath or the place it has in the life of God's people or the role it played in, in a season of human history, anticipating the Messiah instead of being fulfilled by him. We're not minimizing any of that. All we're trying to do is honestly have biblical integrity and, and look at this and go, Paul wouldn't have said what he said. And this is why I think a lot of people just want to sweep Paul under the rug and just, let's just get rid of him because he poses such an issue. I mean, even Peter says like his, his writings are confusing. Peter's not saying there's an issue with Paul. He's saying that there's an issue with people who twist what Paul is saying and rather than explore it and study it like the Berean Jews, they'd rather twist it to their own profit and destruction. So it's not Paul that's the issue. Peter actually confirms the authority of Paul. So we can't throw Paul away. <laughs> what we have to do is look at his writings and go, there, there's no... Not only does Paul not explicitly say, guys, we need to hold to the Sabbath. Not only does the meeting and the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15 not tell the Gentiles, hey, they got to hold to the Sabbath. And you go, well, it's assumed within the Ten Commandments. Not really. Not really, because that's actually what set apart Israel from the rest of the nations as well. So it wasn't assumed. So we have to like think through this and go, what, what, why in the Ten Commandments is there the day of rest? Now, some of you will read that and go, because I'm supposed to do it now, just like they were supposed to do it then. That's fine. That's absolutely fine. I'm trying to show you that there are other conclusions, specifically ones that I've come to, where not only do I see Jesus as fulfilling the Sabbath, I don't even get to like Jesus targeting the Sabbath intentionally. He's not attacking the Sabbath itself. He fulfills it, right? He, he does what the law requires, right? He loves the Sabbath. He's Lord of the Sabbath. But what he does, and it's interesting, you have to ask yourself in the Gospels, why does Jesus 
spends so much, quite a bit of his ministry, purposely targeting the Jewish understanding of the Sabbath in that day. Why does he do that? Mark 3, 1 through 6, the man with the withered hand. Luke 13, um, the woman with a disability. Luke 14, um, John chapter 5, the man who has the mat. And he says, get up and walk. John chapter 7, John 9, Matthew 12. All these passages in the New Testament, in the account of Jesus, why is it that he targets, out of all the different things he could be calling out and exposing, he exposes their self-righteousness, but boy, does he have a field day exposing their misunderstanding and abuse of the Sabbath commandment. Why does he do that? I think it's just something to consider. And when you pair that with what Paul says about essentially all days being equal, and you and your conscience going, I, I see this day as the... I'm going to rest on this day and I'm going to experience rest throughout whatever day. It doesn't change the fact that the Sabbath day is still God's on Saturday. But that doesn't mean no other day can be experienced as a holy day of rest or peace or enjoying Christ. We should enjoy Him every day, not just wait till Saturday. So the question then becomes, just like in the, in the Ten Commandments, now that Christ has come, is there supposed to be the distinction between one day from the rest or is there supposed to be the distinction between Jesus um, and the rest of humanity essentially being a part of the children of the devil until he brings people into the light? Is there supposed to be that distinction foreshadowed and prophesied within the ten, this specific Ten Commandment? Tenth Commandment. It's not the Tenth, but, you know, the Sabbath. And I don't know. I don't know. No matter what... Um, I still stand by what I said that the Sabbath hasn't changed to Sunday. Don't see any biblical precedence for that. Um, here are some kind of helpful thoughts. Just because you don't, let's just say I'm someone that concludes, I don't have to hold a Saturday Sabbath. Does that mean you shouldn't have a day of rest? No. Does that mean you can't have any other day to rest and honor God with that day? No, you totally can um, does you resting on another day and honoring another day unto God change the fact that Saturday was God's set-apart holy day? No, it doesn't change it. I just think our relationship potentially with Sabbath and honoring Sabbath, the seventh day, um, seems that conversation is quite nuanced. Because, again, I personally hold the Sabbath on Saturday. I rest on Saturday, so I'm not telling people not to. I already said that. I think... The biblical wisdom and the heart of the Sabbath is this. Enjoy a day of rest. Have a day of rest. Uh, there's wisdom and there's even a command, I think authoritatively, within this. And I think this is what happens. Is while it's restricted to that day, the concept of rest and honoring God and being set apart and living different than the surrounding nations, that gets expanded to now, I, I think, any day in the sense that Christ fulfills the law. He is the rest that Jesus, that God, you know, always meant to bring. He is the rest. And I can enjoy that rest and walk in communion with God every day. But even though I do, and even though I've entered into rest, I don't believe it's changed the fact that the seventh day is set apart unto God. I just think our relationship with that seems to change a bit because of the fact that Jesus is the Sabbath, like he's the one testified within it. He's the fulfillment of it. He's the, he brings better rest. 
So while physical rest is great, the question becomes, if I don't hold to Saturday Sabbath, am I dishonoring God? And I, and I, I honestly don't believe so if you have a day of rest. It's the heart of the matter. It's the wisdom of the law and the instruction within it. Because again, the concept of the stranger or sojourner being within the gates as a part of this, or you know, or the whole household, um, it's like how far can you take this without being a part of the actual Jewish nation itself when this was instituted? How far can you take it? How much of the Sabbath can you do? Jesus will say things like, look, you guys would rescue uh, one of your animals if it fell in a hole. You're mad that I made someone's body whole? Or is it lawful to heal, to bring life, or to destroy life on the Sabbath? And he like exposes them because they've differentiated between, they've, they've taken the Sabbath law and just abused it and ran with it and twisted it to their own profit and gain and made it more burdensome than it was supposed to be. So I've explained to you everything the Old Testament has to say about the Sabbath. Um, I've explained why I personally hold to Saturday Sabbath. I don't feel comfortable biblically looking at the data, telling people that the objective command for all of God's people is that you have to have a day of rest on Saturday. I look, being honest about what I see in Scripture, I don't feel comfortable making that objective claim. If you do, more power to you. I guess do what I'm not capable of doing. But I wouldn't be honest. Uh, I don't think I'd be God-honoring if I gave a claim that I tr truly don't see as being founded in Scripture. So this is the argument people will say. Oh, so you're saying one of the Ten Commandments has been negated or it's not true anymore. I already told you the truthfulness of the command isn't minimized or changed or violated just because the application of it seems to, uh, seems to shift. That doesn't negate the truthfulness of it. It is still true. But in what way is it true? Like for the people of God. That's the question we should ask now that Christ has come. And if we've had this whole conversation on the law and the Mosaic law as being what locked people under and imprisoned and uh, in some sense we had to be free from it. And now Jesus comes and brings the substance of everything we've needed and our salvation. So now that he has, the question then becomes, why wouldn't I be able to have a set-apart day of rest on any other day unto God just because it isn't Saturday. Why wouldn't I? Because Paul doesn't seem to specify the uniqueness of Saturday apart from any other day. And that, and again, as potentially confusing as that may be, where it's like, how do we reconcile this? It's, a, it's one of the Ten Commandments in stone. Again, when we say Jesus comes and fulfills it and he's the greater Sabbath, brings greater rest, we're not saying the commands of God aren't true anymore. We're not saying the Sabbath isn't true. We're saying the application of that law and the underlying heart and wisdom of it, how does that actually relate to us now in the new covenant? That's all we're asking. No one's saying it changed. No one's saying it's minimized. No one's saying um, it's not true, right? It is still what it is. But our relationship with it, now that we're in Christ who fulfills it, um, I think that's why Paul is able to say the things he says. 
I think that's why the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15 gives the commands to the Gentiles that they do, um, which is to abstain from sexual immorality, uh, blood, animals strangled, and um, I can't think of the other one. There are four. But those are kind of like my closing thoughts. It kind of seems like a cliffhanger because there's still so much that I might educate myself into and come back later and correct and go, guys, I can't believe I said this. What an idiot. But right now, I'm, I'm confidently able to say what I said about the Sabbath. And I, I don't think things will change. I personally, my conscience testifies to the fact that I need to hold to Saturday Sabbath. But when I read scripture, I don't see that as, hey, every believer needs to do this. I just see this as something I want to do. And I think we shouldn't just gauge things as, well, do I want to do it? That's not the filter for whether we should do something. It's paired with, number one, did God say to do it? Seems to be, yeah. Uh, what I would encourage people to do is, number one, at least have a day of rest. Have a day of rest. If you're not, I think that's when it becomes an issue, because why would you not have a day of rest? If you can't have it Saturday, or there's like no possibility for, in, in your mind, you're like, it's not, it's not possible. I can't enjoy Saturday as my Sabbath day of rest from work and stuff. Then, okay, that's why I say have a day of rest. Have a day of rest. Because then, you know, people will go, you know, I have a day of rest throughout the week. I have, I, I stop work and I honor God. I do everything you would do on the Sabbath, but it's not on Saturday. I, I don't see how someone in good conscience can look at that person and go, you're dishonoring God because you didn't do it that day. Is it more about day or is it more about heart, wisdom, obedience, love in relationship to Christ who has brought us into the seventh day rest? Essentially, and you might say, well, some would say, well, he used, technically he's, uh, he's brought us into the eighth day. I don't see how that, you can come to that conclusion, but I would say the seventh day rest that Saturday was set apart to be about. That seventh day rest I've come into in a way where it won't stop. The seventh day continues for a reason. You notice how there's no evening on the seventh day. There was evening and morning for the other six days, not for the seventh. So the seventh day rest Jesus brings us I don't think has a cap because it's eternal. Saturday eventually would end though, right? If you were a Jew, evening Friday, evening Saturday, the Sabbath would end. And go right back to, you know, doing life and then Saturday would roll around again. It would, it would be a, a repeating thing. It would start, it would end. It would start, it would end. The repetition of it, you might say, well, that lasts forever. Jesus brings us into the seventh day rest where it doesn't stop. And it's not like, well, we got to stop now and wait till next week. We have this rest all the time. I think that's what matters. I really do. Uh, when I read scripture, I don't believe God is about a specific day anymore. I think he's about a specific heart and a specific faith in his son. He's the only way, period. So, Maybe go read Colossians 2 and Romans 14, Galatians 4 uh, on your own. And for the other passages where Jesus seems to lovingly expose their misunderstanding of the Sabbath, I'll reference you to Matthew 12, 
1 through 14. I'll speak slowly so you can write this down. John 9, 14 through 16. John 7, 22 through 24. John 5, 1 through 18. Luke 14, 1 through 6. Luke 13, 12 through 16. And Mark 3, 1 through 6. Now I can hear the whispers already. People going, making fun in the comments, going, it's still a command, but it's not. Again, the reason I'm explicitly saying what I'm saying over and over is to show you how dumb that comment would be if you made it, because I've made it clear. I'm not changing the authority, the truthfulness, the purpose, the, the seasonal purpose it played in human history for the Jewish nation. I'm saying the functionality of it, the application of that, okay, when it comes to the day, did that seem to, um, did our relationship with that day somewhat change when Jesus came to fulfill the law? And I think it does. That's why Paul is able to say what he says. Um, and listen, I'm open to hearing other people's interpretations of those texts. Um, I've heard of people saying Colossians 2 is actually a defense of the Sabbath and people who are like telling believers not to hold to Saturday Sabbath. Paul's like, don't let them do that. It just doesn't. That seems like a forced argument to me uh, based on what I see. It seems like Paul's arguing the opposite, not to minimize Sabbath, but to maximize Christ. Um, so either way, visit AboveReproachMinistry.com for me. Would you do that? Go there right now on your phone. Go there on your computer. Take your mom's tablet. Give it back when you're done. Go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. And then what you're going to do is you're going to go to free stuff right here. You're going to click it. If it loads. Let's try this again. It should be a drop-down menu. Aha! The free devotional studies. We have free Bible study skills courses. Free Bible study worksheets. Um... We have an online church on the Discord app. So go download Discord and jump on our online church. We're in the voice chats all the time, praying, asking Bible questions, answering Bible questions, praying with each other, talking, fellowshipping, growing in community. Um, you can get a copy of my book, Fruitful. Click right here, order my book, or you can you know, sample it for free. Uh, sample a portion of it, of course. That's what a sample is. Um, and then you can always give to this ministry. This is my full-time job to support my wife and two kids. I'm not 18. I graduated high school many years ago, many moons. So to support my wife and two kids, this is what God has called me to do. Um, we're just moving people towards Jesus as best as we can and asking God to make our efforts fruitful. So if you want to give to this ministry, you believe in what we're doing, you can give right here on the donate. And I give through your debit or credit card. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, uh, Patreon, get some church merch, uh, sneak on over to our church merch store get a sweatshirt, get a shirt, get a mug. Uh, it supports what we're doing, which is to help people uh, read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And listen, I know um, some people are just going to be mad that I even said what I said today. I get that. But at the end of the day, know that I'm not a false teacher trying to corrupt, trying to pervade, trying to uh, lead people astray. I think that's one of the qualifications for a false teacher. Yeah, number two, I'm really doing my absolute best to communicate what I see clearly in Scripture. And I don't think there's a way around what's being said. There might be a better way to reconcile 
than I did, for sure. Um, but just in the comments, man, if you say I'm a false teacher at Heretic, it's sad that you would go to lengths like that, but it is what it is. I can't stop you. I think that's it for today. I said everything. That's kind of going to wrap up our Mosaic Law um, series. What about the Mosaic Law? I think have a day of rest. If you can on Saturday, why not? Why not? But I don't think it becomes an issue of, for all believers, an issue of like, you don't love God or you're not a believer or you're not really obeying him or you haven't reached like the, a higher level in your faith like you could, bro. I don't think that's what ha what's happening. I think it's an issue of conscience. Regard each day as you believe is to be regarded unto the Lord, no matter what. All right? God bless you guys. Have a day of rest. Really, it's changed everything for me. And God honors that. He does. So keep moving towards Jesus. Bye.